0: There's a whole different range of ways people see communion, Um, but there's loads of commonality about what people think communion's about, and I'm going to talk about a few things from my perspective, I guess. You probably have other views and perspectives on it, and that is great. But um, first thing I want to say, I guess communion um, does what it says on the tin um, in our context, that I think it is genuinely a community act. It's something we do Together rather than individually. I think actually, communion is not so much about me pitching up to the front to, to eat some bread and drink some wine and me thinking about my personal relationship with God. I think actually, there's a lot more in communion that's about what we do together as a community of people. Um, the early church um, did communion, they broke bread, unleavened bread, and they drank wine together from. The very early days of the church existing. Um, they were remembering the Last Supper, um, Jesus with his disciples, um, having their Passover meal, and then Jesus talking to them. That's, that's the act they were remembering. Um, they did it from the very early days, built into um, the communion that they did together, though right from the start was this sense of... Um, social justice and equality built into what they did. So the early church would sit down and have a a meal together, and then at the end of the meal they'd break bread and they'd drink wine and they'd remember um, some of those words that Rebecca just read. Um, But in in lots of the... um, There are documents written down about how to do communion in the early church, and some of the early church fathers wrote up lists of what you do and when you do it and all of that sort of stuff. And there was this sense of a community coming together... um, to be equal with one another, to actually this sense of social justice. People would come to the meal, and they'd bring what they had, and the community would share it together. Um, One of the early church fathers, a guy called Justin Martyr, says this about communion. He talks about um, the Eucharist and says, break bread and remember the words of Jesus and all of that stuff. And then immediately after he explains that, he says, the wealthy, if they wish, may make a contribution, and they themselves decide the amount. The collection is placed in the custody of the president, who uses it to help the orphans and the widows and for all who for any reason are in distress, whether because they are sick, in prison, away from home. In a word, he takes care of all who are in need. And I think right into the heart of communion is built this really practical sense about a community coming together to support the needs of that community. Um, I think that there's another dynamic to it, and it's people coming together to eat a meal in the early church. I think sometimes we've lost some of that in our society where we, we come together even as families, but as a community to just sit down and eat a meal together and do something really practical as a community. I think there's another dynamic to it. I was um, talking to somebody during the week as I was preparing what I was going to say, and they were saying there's also a sort of community faithfulness element to the way communion works. And they were saying um, it's really helpful to them. I'd never really quite thought about it like this, that if they're not feeling personally particularly faithful or they've got doubts at the moment or not necessarily filled with that, like, real sense of faith right at the moment, they found it really encouraging to be able to come and take part in something that a whole community is doing together to express its faithfulness and its faith. And to me, it's a little bit like, you know, in Genesis at the beginning, the first book of the Bible, when it says... We made them in our image. God says we, the Trinity, made them um, the whole of humanity in our image. And God says actually humanity looks best like God when it is together in relationship and in community. I think communion is a little bit like that. I think when we come and take communion together as a community, we best express our faithfulness all together. And there will be people amongst us that feel like we're really doubting some of that at the moment and struggling on the journey and not really feeling like we quite know how it fits together. And there'll be others of us that feel super enthused and feel like we've, we really know the direction we're going in and got great faithfulness. And I think actually all of that together expresses and helps us look most like the image of God as we take communion. So my first point really is this idea of community. Community in a practical sense. Community was about how we share together not just these people in this room right here but how do we share together with our community outside the doors of this building but also how we look like the image of God together rather than individually so that's the first point I I was thinking we often tell this story don't we about Mother Teresa and Mother Teresa who you know one of the great Christian heroes I guess um, and at the end of her life after she died her letters were published and her letters said I had moments of understanding who God was, but I had great swathes of my life where I was trying to serve the poor and felt like I was completely distant from God and didn't have that sort of personal interaction and actually felt, you know, away from God. And actually, I can imagine, I don't know whether this is true, but in those circumstances, Mother Teresa finding real solace of being able to come to Eucharist communion and actually join in with a whole group of people where it wasn't just entirely on her shoulders. It was the entire community together expressing their faithfulness and their faith in and getting caught up in the big story of God. I think there's space for us to feasibly have our doubts but still come together to take communion. So that's my first point. It's a community act. Second thing is that this remembers the Last Supper. And so Jesus, the Jew, is sitting with his Jewish disciples and they're actually re- remembering a much older event. It's the Passover. They're remembering how the um, Jews were set free from Egypt. They were held captive in Egypt as slaves. They were living under the boot of the Egyptian authorities, and they were crying out and saying, God, come and save us. We're, kept, we're being kept slave here in Egypt. And they're remembering the Passover event, the Passover when there's that story in the Old Testament about these plagues that came on Egypt, and the Passover is the, the bit about you know when they painted... Um, blood of lambs on their door and and the Passover missed the Jews and ultimately the Pharaoh decided he'd had enough of all of this and let the Jews go and ultimately they set off and into years into the future back to the promised land. It's this great story of the Jews being freed, liberated Um, and so the Passover meal was Jesus and his disciples sitting down to remember some of that and there's a whole load of depth in that story that we can't go into now but I wonder if they were remembering these two things. One is, and Steve said this in the first um, talk we did on this series, that the Jews felt like they were just all in. God had rescued them. There were these great stories in their tradition that said, God has just rescued us all. We're all in. It doesn't matter how much faith we've got. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter whether we believe the right things, turn up to the right things, go to synagogue regularly. None of that stuff really mattered. We are all just in. And so the Jewish disciples would have been remembering this story that says, we're all in. And secondly, I bet they were remembering a story where they were waiting for somebody to come and release them from their physical captivity to set them free. They were crying out for somebody to come and release them. And there's a parallel. So Jesus and his disciples are now sitting in a society where they're not under the Egyptian boot, but they're under the boot of the Romans. And they're sort of saying, come and do it again, God. Come and set us free. We want a Messiah who comes and fights off the Romans. We want to be set free in our context right here, right now. And so there's this big parallel. And I can imagine Jesus sitting at this dinner, and they're having this Passover meal, and all of that is going on in the background, and he's remembering that that's what his disciples are thinking as they're having this Passover meal. And he breaks bread and says, this is my body broken for you. And he pours some wine and says... This is my blood poured out for you. Do this stuff in remembrance of me. And I bet you it hadn't happened yet because Jesus' death and resurrection comes a few days later into the story. But I bet you inside Jesus is thinking it's going to be completely different to what you expect. It's not going to look like a violent Messiah that comes and fights off the Romans. I know that's what you're all thinking because you're remembering some of the Passover story. But actually the revolution that's coming, the resistance that's coming, looks completely different to what you expect. It's going to go deeper. It's going to be more personal. It's going to infect all of society in a way that you can't possibly understand And I bet you Jesus says, eat this bread and drink this wine. And it's a really physical, tangible thing to remember. Eat this stuff and drink this stuff to remember. And I bet you Jesus is thinking, you really do need to remember this stuff because something completely revolutionally is going to happen. So the the disciples misunderstood this completely. Um, There's a bit later in the story when Jesus has been betrayed by Judas and they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and the... um, Roman soldiers come to take Jesus away. And Peter pulls out his sword, doesn't he? You probably remember that story, and he chops off the ear of a Roman soldier. And Peter's thinking, yes, the battle starts now. Yeah, we can begin the fight. The Messiah's here. We're going to slay the Romans. We're going to kick them out. And Jesus says, put your sword away. The revolution is going to look completely different to what you expect. And so um, I was thinking about in in our context, the revolution in Jesus' mind look like, as we know, because the story goes on for his death and resurrection, looks like sacrifice, even if it hurts. It looks like laying down your life for other people. It looks like going out of your way to include people, even if that means you end up um, dead on a cross. Jesus' revolution is resistance, but it looks completely different to what's expected. Um, Warwick, can we flick across to the video? There's this video, and you're going to have to pardon the cheesy music at the start, but I was sort of thinking about, in our context, but in context of big issues that go on in our society, do we tackle those by trying to crush them and violence and trying to stop it in a really forceful way? Or do we go about trying to change some of those situations in the revolutionary Jesus way, which is quite subversive. Here you go. This is an example, but this is Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in a debate together.
1: The white man pays Reverend Martin Luther King, subsidizes Reverend Martin Luther King, so that Reverend Martin Luther King can continue to teach the Negroes to be defenseless. That's what you mean by nonviolent. Be defenseless. Be defenseless in the face of one of the most cruel uh, beast that has ever taken the people into captivity. That's just the American white man. And they have proved it throughout the country by the police dogs and the police clubs. A hundred years ago, they used to put on a white sheet and use a bloodhound against Negroes. Today, they have taken off the white sheet and put on police uniforms. They've uh, traded in the bloodhounds for police dogs, and they're still doing the same thing. And just as Uncle Tom, back during slavery, used to keep the Negroes from resisting the bloodhound or resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to, to love their enemy or pray for those who use them despitefully. Today, uh, Martin Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same thing today to keep Negroes defenseless in the face of attack that Uncle Tom did on the plantation to keep those Negroes defenseless in the in the face of the attack mm-hmm. of the Klan. In that well, thing. I
2: don't think of uh, love as uh, in this context as emotional bosh. I don't think of it as uh, a weak force. But I I think of love as something strong and uh, that organizes itself into powerful uh, direct action. Now, this is what I try to teach in the struggle in the South, that uh, we are not engaged uh, in a struggle that means we sit down and do nothing. Uh, That There's a great deal of difference between non-resistance to evil and non-violent resistance. Uh, non-resistance leaves you, in, uh, leaves you in a state of stagnant passivity and deadened complacency, wherein non-violent resistance means that you do resist in a very strong and determined manner. And I think some of the uh, criticisms of uh, non-violence, are some of the critics, fail to realize uh, that we are talking about something very strong and they confuse non-resistance with non-violence. The goal
1: of Dr. Martin Luther King is to give Negroes a chance to sit in a segregated restaurant we took beside the same white man who had brutalized them for 400 years. The goal of we Dr. Can, uh, Martin Luther King is to get yeah, Negroes that. to forgive that's the people who So, I mean, that's
0: just a bit of a cameo in history of... Two different responses. Do we respond with the violent warrior crush, we're going to stop this, like that? Or do we respond in the way Martin Luther King talked about them, which was um, love as a really powerful force? And I think when Jesus is sitting with his disciples and they're expecting this violent warrior to come and kick the Romans out, I bet you Jesus is sitting there thinking the revolution is going to look very, very different to what you expect It's going to be loving, and that's a really powerful thing, and it's going to infect all of society with this idea of sacrifice, sacrifice to the point even perhaps where it hurts. The revolution's going to be a personal one. It's going to say to people, you're going to have to think about what you are like first. It's going to be a communal one. What are we like together? It's going to be one that infects all of society, and it's going to be a revolution that says you should resist stuff that's wrong in the world, but you should resist in a non-violent way. You should resist in a way that's subversive. You should resist in a way that's loving to people. Um, I think um, as we come to communion and do communion together, lots of it is probably built on what we think actually happens on the cross and the resurrection. And this is not a talk about that particularly or atonement. And you could say just so much about um, what, what that's all about. But I think our understanding of what happens on the cross and resurrection probably drives what it is we're actually remembering when we come to take communion. Are we coming to an altar where we're remembering um, a God who was angry, and a God who needed justice because of the sin in the world, a God who was saying, I need to punish somebody for this, and in his